As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, this is the Game Podcast from The Times. Today, Chelsea give the game away without showing their hand to reopen the top four race. The relegation scrap that never was. City's title win after Manchester Club taking English football to places it's never been before. And do Manchester United deserve punishment for fielding a weakened team? We'll also look ahead to the playoff finals in the EFL on today's episode of The Game. I'm Hugh Wizencroft to help me through it all. Tom Roddy, Tom Clark, and Gregor Robertson. Guys, how are you doing? Good very morning, well, you. How are you doing? I'm very well. I'm very well. It's been an interesting week in football. Loads of stories, loads of strange results, strange lineups as well, which means it's good for us because we've got loads to discuss. And I think we've got to start with Chelsea, Thomas Tuchel's Chelsea. Massive week for them, of course, but now. Their top four hopes have a big self-inflicted dent in them, to be perfectly honest. They were beaten at home by Arsenal, who we all know are a pretty poor side, let's be frank. And it means that West Ham can close the gap to three points if they win their game in hand. Liverpool could close it to one point if they win their two games in hand. And that means that really Thomas Tuchel's left scratching his head. In fact, holding his hands up, to be frank. He he said he takes full responsibility after making seven changes for the game at Stamford Bridge. Gregor, how big a mistake could this be? Yeah, I mean, well, it's definitely amongst the pigeons again. It's all going to be down to that. First of all, the Liverpool game against Manchester United is enormous now. And after that, their second matchup against Leicester City in the league after the FA Cup final. It's also got the makings of being a pretty big one. So, you know, I think if either of those teams win one game, I think probably they're going to be okay, personally. But it's just it's just going to be very hard to call. I've always been very cynical <laughs> throughout the season and thought that Liverpool were going to were going to find their way back in, and that it would be the the big four that we would expect. But it looks more and more like Leicester City could could hold on. They've got a very difficult, you know, obviously after Chelsea, then they've got got Spurs away, which. You know, you would think on paper is a is another tough game, but this is this is a very different Spurs at the moment. So it's imp- you know, you know, I'm not a big fan of predictions at the best of times, but this is a this is a nonsense trying to predict this because, <laughs> as I say, the less less they're playing against Chelsea, taking potentially taking points off each other, it's very hard to call. Oh, I was devastated to learn last night when I checked. This is before the game, by the way that Liverpool were two to one to make the top four. I mean, not even an outside really? shot. So even the even the bookmakers have some faith in them. And that will be a lot shorter now as we speak. But as you say, the game against Manchester United coming up later on today is absolutely massive. Um, there is a lot of rotation at the moment in the Premier League. And I wonder what Thomas Tuchel was thinking. Was it just the FA Cup final? Because you make that number of changes for a London derby. Maybe you just underestimated Arsenal. I don't know. Um, is it the players being tired? Is, is it the managers trying to be too clever? Tom, Roddy, I'm not sure. I think it is an eye to the FA Cup final and maybe even the Champions League final as well. Giving because it's been, you know, it's been such a grueling season, Hugh, and and it's been a grueling two years really for for these players and the clubs, even with the the massive um, unexpected break. Uh, so I think it was it was him. Tuchel bringing in rotation, thinking ahead to the to, to Saturday, making sure his players were as fit as possible. Because partly because I think he had seen that semi final against Real Madrid, and those players were were pretty much on the floor. They they only just got through. Um, 
it's really taken its toll on them. Um, but I do think it's interesting as well, where you said at the top, Hugh, about how um, Tuchel took full responsibility for it. I think he probably did in public. I wonder whether he did in, in, in person, in, in, in behind closed doors, because that was well below standards, wasn't it? That was well below standards. And the players that were put out shouldn't have, shouldn't have, shouldn't have lost that game. In fairness, though, if you look at if you look at the starting eleven, it's only really Billy Gilmore who you would think could not be in a Chelsea starting eleven, plus the goalkeeper. And the goalkeeper, you know, it wasn't his fault for that for that goal. Um, so you know, mm. I think it's easy to say that. Yeah, there were seven changes made. It's a bit of disruption. Even the fact, I think there's something psychological a little bit about the fact you know you're not part of the first choice eleven, and then you come in. Now that that is a little dynamic, but look at Chelsea starting eleven. It's not like Manchester United's team full of changes against Leicester. It's the symbolism of the changes, isn't it? You know, earlier in the season, uh, those players come in; they've got an opportunity to prove themselves and get back into the team. At this stage, they are pretty sure that they're not going to be involved. Saturday, you're getting towards the end of the season. Um, I didn't think Billy Gilmore did it much wrong, considering he came off at half time. But even even he might have been careful, thinking about you know a lot of those players are going to be in Euro squads, looking ahead to that. Um, so uh, I think it was it, it, their minds were just totally off that game. Tom Clark, what did you think about all of it? Firstly, uh, the the goal itself. I mean, Jorginho, what's he doing? Kepa, where's he meant to be? Uh, I don't think Kepa, who has been the cup keeper, will be in goal for the FA Cup final, by the way, because I don't think you go into a game of that magnitude with him in net. I'm, I'm sorry to be frank about that. But there was a massive chance for Kai Havertz just before then as well, guilt-edged. This Chelsea team is is a team. And you, you have some faith in them as a, as a component of 11 players. But some of the individuals still let them down at times, I think. I think you're right. Firstly, on the goal, I would say it was symbolic of a very lazy and complacent performance overall from Chelsea. I think I wondered whether the players had listened to us on the game podcast on Monday, slating Arsenal and saying how poor they were. And they thought, well, Arsenal are clearly rubbish. We'll just turn up and we'll beat them. Um, so credit for, to Arsenal for getting a win. It wasn't pretty. Uh, from either side. I, I think you make an interesting point there about the Havertz miss and I was thinking about it watching the game and how on a previous podcast I'd said that the strength that Chelsea have under Tuchel with, as you say, this team, this system, is that with their forward players, he can maybe mix and match and rotate and if he plays Werner and Havertz, he then has Ziyech and Pulisic and players to come on. But I was then thinking about how the problem you get further down the line, particularly when it comes to goal scoring and taking chances, is you don't have that consistency. You don't have a player that starts every game and takes those chances. I mean, Real Madrid and that Havertz chance against Arsenal, we're seeing that a lot now with Chelsea. They're getting in on goal, often a one-on-one, and one of those players is not taking the chance. And I wonder whether that comes down to the lack of confidence lack of regular game time, the know, the knowledge as a striker that I'm going to play every game and therefore I take that chance and it's, and this, you know it, it continues from there. So I do, I do wonder whether heading into big games, it's going to be very tight both against Leicester in the FA Cup and Manchester City in the Champions League. You're going to need those players to take those chances and if they're not playing regularly and scoring regularly, that becomes a, a lot more difficult. I don't think we should be too harsh on Chelsea to be honest though let's be honest they, they gave Arsenal the win you look at expected goals you look at the possession stats everything they had, although Chelsea weren't the best they were better than Arsenal and they, you know they gifted them a goal so uh, as long as Chelsea make the top four this game won't, won't matter to them too much and if they don't well, yeah, they may look back and be like, "This is probably why we've been a little bit harsh on them, Gregor." I, I know, but they they had to, you know. We can say should they have made seven changes or not. I think they, I think managers feel they have to really if they have the opportunity. They've got to weigh up which games to to make some changes and to give, you know, to give themselves the best chance in the cup finals that are that are approaching. So it's balancing the risk and reward, and you know, I, I don't think necessarily. That, that decision to make all those changes is the sole reason that they've lost this game. They gifted them a goal and they should have scored a couple at least. 
Ngolo Conte got a rest. Timo Werner got a rest ahead of that big FA Cup final this weekend against Leicester City. Leicester's first FA Cup final since 1969. Chelsea have been in four of the last five. In fact, they've been in a domestic or European Cup final in each of the last five seasons. I wonder if that experience, Tom Roddy, will will be the the difference on Saturday at Wembley. I I think it will. Um, For Leicester, we're sort of seeing a side who are in a moment of progression and real progression. The the it's been a long-term target of the owners of that club and sort of winning the Premier League in 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 many ways they sort of saw as as almost setting them back because the bar was suddenly thrown high um and now we're really seeing the progression and and the 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 FA Cup is is the one that is the box that they sort of need to tick um to be honest it would be a really really big progression and with with Brendan Rodgers, you can you can see it happening, um, and it's going to be a really it's going to be a big test for Chelsea in terms of um, handling the the pressure on being the the, the favourites for this game. Um, they 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 are going to have to handle that more and more now, but they have they they have to take their opportunities because that's the big thing. You know, you referring to Havertz missing against Arsenal. I think he's had he's missed seven big opportunities and only converted three this season. Werner's had eighteen he's missed and converted five from big opportunities. That's been their big problem and that will be where they, they lose the final on Saturday. How do you see it going, Tom Clark? Leicester City and Brendan Rodgers have been fantastic this season, but it's a big, big ask. It is a big ask. I think in a strange way, they will benefit from Chelsea maybe being the favourites and coming under putting themselves under a little bit of added pressure now with this poor performance against Arsenal. I think it was, whilst they beat a weakened Manchester United team, it was still a mature performance and the kind of performance that you'll need to win a cup final. Um the, the players like Tielemans are showing experience beyond their years as well as great skill. But fringe players are stepping up and and giving them something extra. I, I, I don't know why something about it says that Leicester will maybe have a pretty good chance of beating Chelsea in this final. I'm not I'm not exactly sure what that is. But I think Chelsea are under more pressure. They've got the added distractions to come of not only the Champions League final, but also knowing... God, we've made the top four much more difficult for ourselves now. Yes, yeah, something about it says that Leicester are in quite a good position in terms of they've got that win against Manchester United and I think they could cause Chelsea some problems. Um, Brendan Rodgers, very uh, tactically astute coach and I think he'll have a few ideas about how to, to, get, to get past Tuchel. Maybe with the you know running, running in the channels from Jamie Vardy to try and create some space for Iheanacho. Uh, finding space between the back three of Chelsea with by playing two up top. I think it'll be a really interesting game, but I think Leicester have got a chance. There's something something about them this season. So many times we've expected them to dip and then fall away, but they've always come back. And I think that says, that says a lot about the team's mentality. It's a difficult game for me for Leicester City. I, I think they've been brilliant this season, but Chelsea have lost three in 26 matches and... They haven't lost back-to-back games clearly during that time as well. Not clearly, but they haven't lost back-to-back games during that time. So it would be basically their worst week ever under Thomas Tuchel. And they've got, of course, uh, Leicester to come in the Premier League as well. It's important games, but every game for them now is is important. They seem to have a manager for me. I didn't know what to expect from Thomas Tuchel. And I think there was there is one thing tactically. We, we've seen that from the start, how they've played. It's been pretty much consistent all the way through, but I do feel like there is a sense of supreme confidence in him that I didn't think we'd have. I didn't think we'd have a new Pep or Klopp on our hands, someone who really felt that their team was there to to win every single week. And if they didn't, then that was a, a, a massive failure. And I, I, I honestly think we've got a different manager to the one that we saw at PSG because of the politics, because of the huge names, Neymar and Mbappe. And, and let's be honest, players who had regularly been unhappy or thrown a strop during his time, you know, at PSG, always a story, such a big focus. Look, Chelsea are Chelsea, huge club, but it's not Liverpool and it's not Manchester United when it comes to the, the sort of narratives in, in the, the football in public in Britain. I, I think he's able to get on with his job just a little bit more than he was at PSG. I, I've been, I say, pleasantly surprised by that. Um, it, it's interesting to see that he might have 
you know, that ruthless streak that those really great managers have. And he might well be in the right place. If he wins at the weekend, do you think he could go on to win many, many more at Chelsea? Yeah, I do think he can. I think the, the problem, I agree with you, Hugh, in that there aren't as many sort of politics at a club like Chelsea compared to, to PSG. But at the same time, the one the one thing that I think is going to... Um, Thomas Tuchel likes using the phrase, don't lose our heads. And I think the, the, the one way he would lose his head at Chelsea is by falling out the hierarchy, which he has a history of doing. He, he does fall out with hierarchies of clubs. And at Chelsea, what tends to happen is a manager gets, Antonio Conte is the big example of it, he gets success, says, you know, this is, look what I can do. Um, and then thinks that allows them to then demand the players and the, the assets that they think can then progress them on to win because they've already shown that they can win one, two trophies to go on and and not, not necessarily dominate, but, but, but really progress the club and keep on um, competing for trophies for years to come. And the club says no, because they have, they have in their mind players that they want to go for, which from, from history tells you sometimes works, sometimes doesn't, but that is their philosophy. That's how the club works. It has become and has been for quite a few years now, a head coach at Chelsea, as it is at many clubs, not, a manager, not someone who has the final say on who is who is going to be bought, who is going to be sold, um, and that will that will be where Thomas Tuchel will slip up. But I think he's just he's a he's a very clever man, and at the moment he is um, saying all the right things to us, to the players, to the hierarchy, um, and it, it, I think this summer will be really interesting to see what happens in those talks about who they need to bring in. Tuchel has exceeded expectations, undoubtedly. And with, I've said before, probably with a striker and maybe a centre-half, I think they will go toe-to-toe with, with City next season. He's, what he's done, you know, the, the impact he's had has been remarkable. But And, and Tom, everything Tom's saying is right. You can't, there's no point in looking too far into the future where Chelsea are involved. I think we can look and say, without doubt, they're going to compete next season. Um, but cup finals are one off and Brendan Rodgers had a really good record against against big six teams and he's proven himself to be ju- almost as well I would say just as astute a, a tactician he's not working with the same standard of players and very flexible too they've, they've, been, they've shown different ways to win they've often you know we look at the way they, they played against Man City earlier in the season sat really deep conceded possession went on the counter-attack who knows if they stay in the game long enough that could be a that could be if they took the lead, that could be a way for them to get a second goal. There are lots of ways that Leicester can approach this game. And Brendan Rodgers, you know, I, I have full confidence in him, you know, having a really good game plan for this. And I think it will be it will be a tight game, partly because Chelsea aren't prolific and partly because Leicester uh, have a very good manager too. For a man who doesn't like making predictions, you sure, sure are teeing yourself up <laughs> to make a prediction here, Gregor. I've got to ask, come on. We can all, we'll all do one. I don't mind doing them. It's, you've teed it up so nicely. Come on, what are you going for? Uh, what am I going for? Sadly, I'm going to still, despite all that, I'm probably going to go for like a 2-0 win Chelsea. But like a second goal towards the end, I think it'll be tight throughout most of the game. But I think Leicester, I think Leicester will push them. Hugh, I assume you've got Chelsea, you've Chelsea nailed on and you already handed them the trophy. Not necessarily. I just uh, Roman Abramovich pays directly for this podcast to exist, which is why it was so. <laughs> uh, um, no, I, I jest for those of you that believe he, he's in some way involved. Um, I, I think Chelsea are the favourites, but I think Leicester are a really good side. I just think of late their form has dipped. I think it was a gift of a result. We're going to talk about it in a second against Manchester United as well. A confidence booster. But I, I don't know if they would have won that game if Manchester United were full strength. I predicted they probably wouldn't have. So um, I, I still don't think they're in the greatest form of late. And actually, I think Brendan Rodgers might, if Johnny Evans is injured, try and change formation. Because as Mikel Arteta showed, against the back three, they're less comfortable Chelsea. They haven't got that prolific goal scorer that can get them something out of nothing. So it'd be interesting to see if Rodgers comes with something uh, different tactically to what we expect. Um but I, I think if I were to make a prediction, it would be Chelsea 2-1 at this point in time. And I don't think it would be that entertaining. No. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Tom? 
I fear that if Chelsea take the lead, then it just becomes... The one thing that we've seen of Thomas Tuchel football is that uh, they just control games, don't they? So if, if, if they take the lead, then I think it just dies then, doesn't it? I think from a neutral perspective, it would be great to see Leicester... Um, Leicester take an early lead and Chelsea have to chase the game but I fear it's going to be a 2-0 Chelsea and an unmemorable final (laughs) honestly come on guys Jesus (laughs) come on I hope it's 4-0 to Leicester and we can all just pack up no I'm I'm, I'm backing them I'm backing them I'm backing them there'll be a piece of magic or from one of the Leicester players to get them in the game and they're going to win 2-1 I'm telling you now put your money on I mentioned it briefly there, the game at Old Trafford this week. Manchester United making 10 changes. It included two players from outside their 25-man Premier League squad. Academy players, you're allowed to play, of course. Uh, It massively, I think, aided Leicester's hopes of finishing in the top four and winning the game. Uh, The Foxes took it 2-1, of course. But given the game was moved due to a protest from Manchester United that the club... Um, for many, did very little to stop, really, in terms of security. They could have done more. They could have had additional help from the Greater Manchester Police. They didn't. That game was moved. Managers have been critical of the fact Manchester United have had to play four games in eight days. They then made a huge number of changes, which maybe distorted the, the race for the top four. And that has maybe left some feeling Manchester United should face some sort of sanction for this, a, a points deduction, maybe a financial uh, punishment as well for distorting the competition. Tom Clark, would that be fair? No, but I can understand why people are calling for it within the wider context of things that have happened before. Blackpool in the past, in Hollywood, made 10 changes, I think, once and they got fined £25,000. There have been other punishments for teams for similar and varying different uh, misdemeanors calling games off changing teams over the years it's manchester united's right to be in their position and to choose to prioritize as they as they want to that's you know they weren't throwing the game or anything they still picked a pretty strong team there's also the fact that you know harry maguire was injured so he wouldn't have been playing anyway um they've got their own priorities of the europa league which they've earned the right to to prioritize and so they still picked a fairly strong team it was a fairly close game i think it would be it, it would open a very difficult. Uh, it would set a very difficult agenda for the for football authorities to keep if you punish Manchester United for this, because I think, given the number of matches, Tom alluded to it before, clubs are within their right to rotate, and we'll probably we've seen it before. Clubs have won titles already. They've got a cup final. They're going to change a load of players and play the kids. I I, I think. I think it would be wrong to, to punish them for this, I think. The Europa League final isn't this week, though. And what's clear from no, what but, Manchester no, but, United did was that they made 10 changes for a game against Leicester City instead of making four or five, six changes for a game against Leicester City and then making another four or five, six changes for the game against Liverpool two days later. What they did was they went no strength. Let's be perfectly honest. They emptied the bench against Leicester City and they will go full strength against Liverpool. But you're, yeah, that's that's true. But you're taking those two games in isolation. What you should really do is add in the third game against Aston Villa and say he played full strength Villa, full strength Liverpool, rested in the middle, which then makes a little bit more sense because you're going for the two games either end, prioritizing those two and saying right, I'll make the changes in the middle. But there is also the factor of yes, the Europa League's not this week, but Bruno Fernandez and Paul Pogba are absolutely vital to Manchester United's hopes of success in that final. I think you'd be Solskjaer would be well within his rights to play them for 20 minutes in every game until the Europa League final because they both played a lot of football. Pogba's had his injury problems. Fernandez has played nearly every minute along with Marcus Rashford. Well, yeah, that's a point, isn't it? Bruno Fernandez has played every minute, including starting a second leg against Sociedad that, that United were leading by four goals, a second leg against Roma that United were leading by four goals. So in terms of resting his players, it's something that he probably should have thought of before the game against Leicester City, and he hasn't. So I can understand why their fans might be a little disappointed. Yeah, I can see why opposition fans made the point. And I've had friends who said, no, it's a disgrace. He made way too many changes. But I think in the broader picture, you can you can unpick that argument eventually by making the, making the broader points about the priorities that they have earned the right to, to focus on. 
It would also be, I know there are extenuating circumstances with this because of the reason that the game got moved from from Old Trafford, uh, from the from the original date, the Liverpool one. But at the same time, I think it would be slightly hypocritical to bring in fines when we've had the league telling clubs and telling managers, this is a year in which you pretty much need to accept what we give to you in the fixture schedule. You've had, you know, Fulham, we heard a lot from Scott Parker at the time um, about the Fulham Tottenham game. It was thrown on them. They weren't happy about it, but they dealt with it. It would be pretty hypocritical for the league to then say, well, you can't, we know we've given you these games. You can't then make 10 changes, however many it was. That's not acceptable. Um, And especially it was, I think it was 10 years ago uh, this year that they brought in the rule after that black ball fine that clubs are given, they're allowed their squads and you can pick from them whatever you wish. That's the rules. Yeah. Listen, I can appreciate what what all of you are saying. Um, the thing that was most disappointing for me was that in all of this, this season and having to move fixtures, that Manchester United Liverpool game should have been played the next day. You know, that, 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 that for me was the obvious place to play it. United had a game on the Thursday. They could have played it at 1 p.m. If it was a European game, if it was an international game, it would have been played the next day. It could have been played if the, if the Premier League were desperate to do it. They could have asked St. James's Park to host it the next day. You know, it was a bank holiday as well in the middle of the day. Players could have driven up there. They could have gone down to the Midlands. It could have been virtually anywhere. It could have, it could have, but it had to be in the evening. It had to be at a good TV slot because it's Manchester United, Liverpool. And so it was wedged into the next week. And that for me wasn't taking into account the fact that we're in a very pressed tight season in terms of fixtures. Was there not a, some discussion as well about moving Liverpool's game against against West Brom, um, but then the authority said it should, this shouldn't affect other teams. West Brom are relegated. Like I think probably the league could have done something maybe to make it a bit easier for everyone. But the, the most important thing to say is this is not Man United's fault, not the players, not all, not Solskjaer's. It, yes, you could have a question marks about the club's handling of that, the protests and whatnot, and why this happened. But it's certainly not the players' faults. And you just all you need to do is defer to Jurgen Klopp. He said he would have done the same. And this is it's affecting him, so yeah, you've got to feel sorry. I feel sorry for West Ham more than anyone, but this has been a crazy season. And as Tom says, there's like there are lots of things you could say have kind of skewed the competitive integrity a little, little bit this season. And this is just kind of the latest one. It pretty much is, um, but it means that Leicester go into the FA Cup final uh, with a win. We'll be discussing that on the game podcast on Monday, of course. Uh, remember, though, if you're enjoying the podcast, give us a five star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast from and make sure you're subscribed to The Times and The Sunday Times right now. You can get it across all of your devices. And if you sign up today, you will also get one month free. Go online, search thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game to get started and to get more of us. Up next, we'll talk Manchester City, the champion. Champions League final and the playoffs as well in the EFL. Stay with us. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. 
Manchester City are Premier League champions for a third time in four years. It was confirmed after Manchester United's defeat to Leicester. Their manager, Pep Guardiola, said it was the hardest one they'd they'd won in a season that was like no other. The era of City dominance, I feel, is well and truly upon us. Maybe that arrived a few years ago, but I think it's going to continue now for many, many more years. But the secret success of what Manchester City have done this season and how they've coped is available for you in The Times right now. A fantastic read from Paul Hurst and Paul Bayus. Absolutely fantastic read that gets right in behind the scenes on exactly what uh, Pep Guardiola is like, how he lives his life and his approach to the club as well. A great feature. You should read it right now. And I was lucky enough uh, to catch up with Paul a little bit earlier on, who firstly told me what he felt the secret to the success of City season was. It's kind of tough because it's a year that they have been not in hell, but I think that they had a glimpse at, at what hell can be because I can remember that in December people were talking about like next season, Peps need to do like an overhaul, needs to rebuild this team. Um, and I, I think that the team just put everything together just to go from that point to, to heaven, to win the Premier League, to um, re, uh, regain that title that they lost last season. Uh, in words of Pep Guardiola, it's like uh, the most difficult season that he has been here in England. So that says a lot because he has been through like um, one of the fiercest battles with 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 Liverpool two years ago. Um, so he knows a bit about that. Um, and yeah, I feel that this season um, we've seen a city probably more collective than in other seasons, more uh, stable uh, defensively above all. Um, but yeah, I think it's been one of the uh, greatest achievements of Pepinia for sure. You can understand why he's saying that because he has had to deal with so many things. You outlined them in the article as well. What do you think was the most difficult thing for him to encounter? I think that the most difficult thing um, was to manage the moment when mo- a lot of people in the club thought that it was his last season and he had to extend the contract because it, it was like a rumor that um, had already reached all the players, all the squad. Um, there were some doubts about the, con- the continuity of that project. So that was a bit of a hassle um, just to how, how you manage that. And I think that he took the right choice uh, saying like in November, oh, okay, despite the bad moment, I'm going to announce that, that I'm going to stay. Um, because it had a huge effect on the team, on the squad, and in the performance. Because in the coming month, I started this like long run of of twenty one wins in a row that I think that are the key to understand the achievements that they've done this season. There have been some notable players: the resurgence of John Stones in defence, alongside the new signing, the possible player of the year in Ruben Diaz, the Portuguese defender as well. But it is a sensational squad at Manchester City. But I wonder about Pep Guardiola, whether he is learning, whether he is evolving. Um, and that's a, almost a scary prospect for the rest of world football. You know, we've seen other great managers. They reach their high points. They begin to tail off. He seems to be getting stronger. It's very ominous. Yeah. One of the most exciting things I would say about this team is that I think it's the first Premier League champion that wins the league without like a prolific striker. Uh, without a goal scorer that, that score, I don't know, uh, 25 goals a year, because I think that now the Premier League top goal scorer for Man City is Ilkay Gundogan with 12 goals. I think that Pep has proved that the false nine, his like most famous weapon, um, that he built with Messi in Barcelona, it can destroy football here in England too. It can have an impact in football here too. Um, and I think that, yeah, um, if I had to remember or if, if I had to have in mind some kind of tactical movement that he has done this season and it has to be re- remembered, I think that the false nine has had uh, a huge impact. Now you are mentioning also John Stones and, and, and Ruben Diaz. Uh, I think that on the defensive aspect, uh, this false nine also was like very, very important because playing with so so number nine, so attacking midfielder, so many players that know how to deal with the ball, how to pass the ball, when when to do it, why do it, uh, made made the team like move more smoothly, be more stable. And in, yeah, I think yeah, it was one of the key decisions for sure. Tell us a little bit more about Pep Guardiola because this article has 
Um, some really interesting little tidbits about who he is as a person, how he lives his life. And of course, the, the things about his personality that enabled him to um, really ride through some of the difficult points of the season. When you speak to Pep Guardiola, one of the things that he says, um, I remember the, one of the first times that I spoke to him like in an interview, um, that he told us that for him, Manchester is basically his home and, and his office. Those are the places where he spends most of the time because he works a lot. And when he's not working, he's like resting at home. But at the same time, um, and we have proved that I think this season more, 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 more than ever is very important for him just to find some things outside the pitch, outside football, just to disconnect himself, just to be able to switch off at some point. Um, and just to keep going. Um, we've seen the anecdote of the, of, of the uh, ride with the bike uh, decision that was like a bit of a funny moment but yeah just just to show a bit how Pep needs also like something just to switch off just to be himself just to be a normal guy that can uh, ride the bike from his home to the City Football Academy and then go go to train like probably the best uh, squad in the world so yeah uh, I think it's a mix of things it's a mix of work but also just the ability and the desire just to have this switch of moments that that are important for him. You speak about the best squad in the world. There are football fans that would almost feel like what Manchester City are doing is is not as remarkable as it might otherwise be without the, the spending and investment in the squad over the last sort of 10 years with the Abu Dhabi group. It still has to be put together. They have done something very special at Manchester City to bring all of these great talents together and, and make it click as well. Is it Does it hinge on the manager or are there other figures at the club that maybe you think are more important? Uh, I think that at the club they are like totally aware that what they are doing is quite above of, uh, of, of that's all about money. I mean, if they wouldn't be able to sign so many good players, uh, those kind of Premier League titles wouldn't have arrived. Never. That's a fact. But uh, once you have these type of players, they know that uh, a lot of work is needed to make them work because it's not easy to deal with a dressing room uh, on that stage of football. Um, and they have to put them... I think that you have a lot of examples here in that country that money is not everything. Um, that a uh, bit of talent and a bit of management from the sides is like very important. And um, people from the club knows about that. Then I think that Pep also feels that the club backs him in that regard um, in all he needs. That's one of the reasons why he has a state and why he has two more years uh, of contract, because he feels that he's on the same page in that regard that the club's hierarchy. Paul, just before you leave us, it's a fantastic article you've written alongside Paul Hurst. Journalistically, how long does it take to pull something like this together? And how did you get all of these these insights into what goes on behind the scenes? It's been a long work. It's been a long work. But here, I'd say that, that, that Paul and I had the good point that we are here in Manchester, like in a day-to-day -day basis, we are following the team uh, in, in anywhere they go that give us like... Uh, huge jungle of context. Uh, I don't know if, if I explain myself good, but um, yeah, the fact of being here, of living the team, of seeing like every game, I think that it makes us feel close to the club and the club feels us close. And yeah, it's just like having your nose, ar your nose around there. Um, and yeah, just trying to make questions when you can and just gather all the information because you know that at some point, pro probably at some point you have to save some information to then um, just um, publish it out at the at the right moment, and I think that, that that's what we try to do with Paul here. Our thanks to Paul for joining us and taking us through uh, what what is a great feature. As I say, check it out in the Times right now. Um, Manchester City. I mean, it's it's becoming a juggernaut now, just a results machine. Fantastic side to watch. Great players. You don't see it changing. You know, we talk about how Chelsea might compete next year. Liverpool might come back. Who knows with Manchester United? I mean, we are looking, I think, at a side that has won five of the last 10 Premier League titles that will probably win at least five of the next 10, as far as I'm concerned. Do you see it going any other way, Gregor? Well, we say that, but we have to... You know, as as was played out in this excellent piece, we have to go back to kind of November time, um, when 
when City were looking in an awful state and we this looked like it was impossible. This was never going to happen. Um, so, you know, that you have to give them credit for... I think what, what we've seen this season is a slightly different City, a bit more of a pragmatic City, you know, finding that balance between the targeted pressing and defensive solidity. And some of that's to do with the, the individuals involved. You know, John Stone's coming into partner, uh, Ruben Diaz. I think they got six clean sheets straight away. Ruben Diaz, <laughs> Ruben Diaz's arrival in the first place. Part of it is also to do with, I think, a little bit of pragmatism from Pep Guardiola this season. We are in a period of dominance. I, I don't think you can say necessarily they're going to win the league every year because as we've seen with Liverpool, football always throws something up. But as is also laid out in this piece, I think their, the average age of their squad's 20, of their starting 11 is about 26 and a bit. The whole squad's 24. So it's like, they need a striker. Apart from that, this is a squad that can go on for a few years yet. I think City deserve great credit, partly because of how they began the season and how unlikely this appeared, and partly about the way that they've kind of they've shifted their philosophy a little bit. They scored far fewer goals, 2.1 goals per season, and last season it was 2.7, but they've just been so good at the back. And goals from so many different places, I think. It also said in a piece, 19 players have scored this season. So, you know, they've shared the burden. It's been a, a triumph of the collective rather than individuals. I, I totally understand the question, Hugh. Um, we we always do this every year, don't we? And and it's always you're always tempted to to say, even with Liverpool last year, the idea of them dominating for years with that team. Uh, the thing with City this year is, I just think that we'll reflect on this season for years. It will be such a memorable one because to to, to imagine ten years ago, fifteen years ago, that a side could win the Premier League. Sp- pretty comfortably without an attacker, without a striker. We always say you need a 30-goal-a-season striker to win the Premier League. To to think that they've done that without one, Sergio Aguero for most of the season on the sidelines and with with Gabriel Jesus, who we all thought was going to be his successor watching from the sideline. It's just incredible that they've done that. Um, I mean, I uh, my um, vote for Football Rights Association Player of the Year went to Ruben Diaz. Um, and the reason, the large reason was because at the beginning of the season, uh, on this podcast, I think, I my prediction was that Liverpool would win the league. And the only reason for that was because of Virgil van Dijk. He was, he was why I thought they would do it. And the reason I think City have won the league is because of Ruben Diaz. He, he is their Virgil van Dijk. Big news for Manchester City fans that has broken uh, while we've been discussing this and Chelsea as well. The Champions League final is going to be moved. Unfortunately, it will not be held in the UK. It will be taking place in Porto, in Portugal, because of coronavirus restrictions. 6,000 fans from each club will be permitted to attend. Portugal is currently on the green list here in the UK. Fans can attend uh, without having to quarantine on their return home. Turkey is on the red list, so that, of course, meant the game had to be moved. It's the second straight year the final will be held in Portugal. Um, but, of course, the main reason was that the UK government wouldn't allow loads of VIPs from UEFA to fly in for a match. They did want the, to have the game here, but in the end, UEFA deciding it would be in Portugal instead. I mean, that, that is positive news, although I, I guess there's a lot of City and Chelsea fans currently trying to get flights and change their previously booked flights to Istanbul. Is that the right decision, Gregor? Obviously, your instinct is, why should the game not be played on somewhere in home soil for environmental reasons as much as you know, <laughs> any other reasons? But I also fully understand the, the reasoning behind the importance of, of quarantine and you know, particularly with new variants and whatnot. So I think we should just be thankful that we've got um, a Champions League final between two English clubs and that some fans can be there. As Gregor said, it's a good thing that fans will be there. I just hope that they can get there, the people that want to. I'm currently looking at flights now and either from Manchester or London to Porto, it'll set you back 500 quid. And I reckon it'll be a lot more expensive than that in a couple of hours time. Now that this announcement's come out, I just hope the fans that can and should be there can get there fairly easily. There'll be fans there. That's that's a good thing. Fulham were relegated earlier on this week. They joined West Brom and Sheffield United in going down back to the championship next year. It is the soonest in a season that all three teams have been relegated. So nothing for us to worry about in terms of the, the bottom of the table from here on out. I wonder which of these three clubs, Fulham, 
West Brom, Sheffield United deserve much credit. I mean, that's the wrong way to phrase it, really. I mean, they've all had good periods, but, you know, I, once again, I just think they, they have almost let themselves down in many ways. Tom? Yeah, it's you get to the end of the season, it is... <laughs> Any team that gets relegated, it's hard to give them credit. I mean, there were elements of Fulham that I admired this season throughout the throughout the probably the middle mid part of the season. Um, Sheffield United just sort of we didn't see we this season could have come last year, couldn't it? it could have gone gone the other way around. Didn't really see it coming so much this year. West Brom. The the change to Allardyce, it, it just took a while for his his um, influence to actually to actually work. Um, I think maybe thinking ahead to next year about who would be best set to come back up. I wonder I wonder whether it is West Brom really because um, whether that's Allardyce, whether it's someone else. I don't see them being sort of. I see them having the squad that's ready to do it. The, the big problem with Fulham is the, the their approach, their philosophy this year. In that the whole the team was made up of lone players. There were seven lone players there who who started most games. At least six or seven usually started most games. Pretty much, I'm I'm, I'm almost certain none of them will be there next year. So you've got a, a totally different core to a side. A, a big rebuild in a summer, and I suspect they will do it again with with loan deals. Do you think Scott Parker will be there next season, Gregor? Yeah, I think he probably will. But I think his, his uh, post match musings were pretty telling, really, the other night. I think he's the problem with Fulham is is the structure. Still, it looked like it had been improved slightly in terms of the recruitment model, and you know, basically. They left it to the last minute again, as they did in the se- their previous season top flight, when they, you know, sprashed a hundred million pounds up the wall. Basically, um, this time they did it really late, and they got in loads of loan players, and they were better players, so they gave them half a chance, and they improved the team. But it was still no way to run a football club. So the problem is not Scott Parker, in my view. I mean, Scott Parker's still learning; he's fairly new in management, but I think he's, I think he's got a lot of potential. I think he's shown that he's a he's a good coach. I think the problem is Fulham. So also personally, I think it's quite telling that a club like Fulham can win two promotions without doing much that's that impressive. Uh, largely because they're given forty-two million pound parachute payment after relegation, and they will be again next season, as West Brom will. West Brom didn't do that much. You know, look, Slavin Bilic took them up, and, and they didn't look they didn't look great when they won promotion, and then they sat down. Billich too early, in my view. So I think West Brom deserves zero credit. Um, but again, I wouldn't be surprised to see them come back up. So I think Parker will probably be there next season. But the, the problem is not Parker. The problem is, I think, probably getting some kind of hold on a sensible, progressive, modern uh, recruitment structure of the club. Uh, just on the parachute payments, does that completely distort things in the championship for you? Because... There's going to be extra funding uh, in the football pyramid with a new TV deal, another 100 million quid provided over the next uh, four years as well, which, depending on how it's distributed, could further distort things. No, I mean, I think that's going to be more equally spread. But also, I think that there's another way of looking at that, which is that Norwich and Watford have gone back up this season and therefore the Premier League save initially another 80 or 85 odd million quid in parachute payments in the first year there so that's another way of looking at it it looks like generosity but you know they're clever um does it distort distort the the championship yes but i think there are other extenuating extenuating circumstances this year i.e a pandemic where the rest of the championship were you know trying to deal with huge losses and survive and you know Bournemouth, you know, we're going to come on to talk about the playoffs. Bournemouth are in the playoffs. This could be the first year that all three teams bounce straight back. Uh, and a fourth team, Swansea, are in receipt of their third and final year of parachute payments. So that's two thirds of the of the teams in the, the promotion picture are in receipt of parachute payments. And there have been studies done that say you're twice as likely to win promotion in receipt of parachute payments. They've just grown so big with the Premier League TV deal. The gulf between the divisions is so big, you need to narrow that gulf between all the teams in the Championship and the Premier League rather than narrowing the gulf between the teams who 
and receive parachute payments in the Premier League? That's a big question, and it's probably something that's going to be looked at in the in the fan-led review. Let's quickly refer then to the playoffs that you mentioned. They uh, begin very, very soon across the EFL. Uh, Let me just tell you, the championship playoffs, Bournemouth against Brentford, Barnsley against Swansea. Uh, In League One, it's Blackpool versus Oxford United and Sunderland against Tom Clark's beloved Lincoln City. And in League Two, Newport versus Forest Green Rovers and Morecambe against Tranmere. Um, The playoffs, I think, Tom Clark, are a special part of the English football pyramid great part of the calendar as well and have provided some sensational moments as well let's not forget they're just horrendous for any fans of clubs that are in them that's the only <laughs> problem it's great for it's great for all you guys they're the ultimate i was discussing this with um a sunderland and a blackpool fan recently and we we're saying how they're the ultimate football for the neutral because there's no i don't know many fans of teams who go into the playoffs rubbing their hands going, yes, get in, come on, I'm absolutely well up for this, I'm absolutely buzzing. You're just absolutely petrified and it's it's awful. I mean, we've seen this week what a complete lottery they are seen as by clubs themselves because Tranmere sacked their manager, Keith Hill, with their chairman openly admitting that, you know, we've not been in a great great uh, bit of form. I'm going to going to change it up just for these two or two or three games and see what happens. It's just a, such a complete complete lottery. So yeah, you you guys will enjoy it. I'm I'm absolutely terrified. I think it'll be great, Gregor. You, you haven't played in the playoffs before, have you, Gregor? Uh, only the National League playoffs actually. In my last won season, them. we won them. We, yeah, we, well, I, I played them the last two seasons of football. And one year we lost on penalties in the final at Wembley, which was probably the worst moment you can have in football. A whole season distilled to one penalty kick. Uh, and then this following season, we won. But uh, the semi-final was one of the most dramatic moments I've had, which was we lost the first leg 1-0. And then the second leg, we scored a winner in, in extra time. And there was like a pitch invasion from the fans. Our manager, Paul Hurst, had to sprint on the pitch. He's just little guy and he's got you know, him sprinting across the pitch down to the goal kind of trying to shoo all the fans off the pitch <laughs> so um, yes great drama in, in the playoffs and we won that one do players worry about it in the same way that fans do it's just so so weighty you know the, you've got to deal with the pressure that's that's a big thing and I think if you look at these these semis you know Brentford have been have come close last season Swansea have also had the experience of last season. They're playing against Barnsley team who are really young, dynamic. On their day, they will be a match for anyone. But are they going to kind of handle that pressure the same way as Swansea have had the experience? And Bournemouth, you know, Bournemouth have the best squad in the Championship, I think, on paper. They're just again, they could stumble into the Premier League. They've not looked impressive at one point in the season. Well, they won six games in a row after before they lost the last three. That's the best period they've had this season. Um, but they're full of full of Premier League players, that squad. So, you know, it, a lot of it is about how you handle the pressure, absolutely. Tom Murray, you've you've been down to Bournemouth, spoken to some of their players. Should they be the favourites in the, in the playoffs in many ways? They should be. I agree with Gregor in terms of the, um, the, the, the squad that they've got. Um, but I also think... The big issue, uh, you know, playoffs, the the pressure of a playoff game uh, is just so high anyway. And I think it just feels even bigger for Bournemouth. I think they are probably the club who might feel the pressure the most here because um, we we saw the players who left last year from relegation. Um, And I think if they don't go up, we'll see quite a few more players leave this year. Um, plus, they they just know how, even with the parachute payments, they know how financially important it is for them. This is their big opportunity to to bounce straight back, and and we saw that from the decision to to get rid of Jason Tindall earlier in the season. Um, that was because the, because of the inconsistency, because they felt, despite the emotional connection, they had to do it because they saw this year as the, the one they had to go straight back up. Um, it's, it's, too dan- it's dangerous not to. I see them as the club with the biggest pressure out of, out of the four. Just say that the semi-finals are always far better than the final. Because the final is when the pressure really starts to tell, and they've been absolutely shocking for years now. <laughs> I mean, you remember, was it Huddersfield Reading? 
my God, that was one of the worst games I ever ever saw. And then the penalty kicks is where the drama kicked in. And last season's as well, you know, Brentford Fulham, it was it wasn't a classic. So the semi-finals, because there's so much desperation, probably in the se- some part of the second leg, great drama. Tom Clark, League One. What do you think is going to happen? I've absolutely no idea, and I'm terrified at the prospect. So, yeah, <laughs> uh, I think I think it's very interesting with the teams that are in it. Um, ourselves and Oxford are kind of the smaller teams aiming high, and then when it took, coming back to that pressure that Tom talked about, it, that pressure is huge on Sunderland and to a lesser extent Blackpool. They're the kind of bigger clubs. The we shouldn't be in this league type feeling. Um, and for Sunderland in particular, this season, they won the Papa John's Trophy. The sense of momentum that they had initially until the last few months when things have tailed off, their fans uh, will be will be like me, absolutely terrified about these next, these next few weeks. Um, it'll be incredibly difficult. The thing that both Sunderland and Blackpool have is they both have a goal scorer. Uh, Blackpool have Jerry Yates and Sunderland have Charlie Wyke who are two of the top scorers in the division. And I think that might give them the edge in them in their matches. Um, and we could see a Blackpool-Sunderland final. But I tipped, I tipped Blackpool to do well at the start of the season. So I'm going to say they're gonna, they'll, they'll do it because I love, a, I love a prediction. Robertson hates them. I love them. So Blackpool <laughs> are going to win League One. There you go. Gregor, League Two, predictions? <laughs> uh, well, that's Tom's, yeah, that's Tom's uh, predictions, yeah. It's even harder because there's three teams finished on 73 points. Tranmere, Forest Green and Newport tied. 73 points. Morecambe took it to the last day. Morecambe's a great story. Morecambe every year are the favourites to get relegated. And under Derek Adams have been absolutely brilliant this season. They were looking, they took it to the final day. Uh, I think the week before they lost to Bolton, which was really pivotal. Um, but they could have won automatic promotion. So they are, they've had the best season. Uh, and as Tom says, Keith Hill's been sacked. I think the atmosphere, I think they won two of his last 11. But the guy they've replaced him with, uh, Ian Dawes, he 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 managed five games as an interim before Keith Hill got the job and won four and drew one of them. So that you know, there is some previous there. Um and Forest Green not long ago, a month ago, sat Mark Cooper as well, and they've got an interim manager, uh Jimmy Ball. So if you want a prediction, I'm gonna tell you to do one basically because <laughs> 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 I've got no idea. I think I'd I'd love to see Morecambe. I'd love to see Morecambe because they have had a great season and as I say, they are you know, they're one of the smallest. Them and Accrington Stanley are arguably, well, Harrogate just came up, Forest Green are pretty small, but they've got a lot of money. They, they are one of the smallest clubs in the whole football league. And if they were to move up a division, that'd be a great story. Extremely difficult to call, but uh, you've both outlined the sorts of things that make the, the playoffs really one of those interesting melting pots of all those different subplots for different teams as well. And it's, look, it's impossible to call, isn't it? Let's be honest. Um, But Tom Clark, you were, you know, it did get us thinking about some of the great playoff moments over the years as well. It did. And as Gregor says, some of the finals of recent years have been poor, perhaps because of the added pressure, but there's been some fantastic moments down the years. Um, On this podcast, I seem to be becoming the man to give people tips on what to watch on YouTube from time to time. And if you have never seen slash listened to the Jan Kermagant song uh, on YouTube. I would look it up after this. It's all about, it's a Leicester fan who wrote a song to Jan Kermagant after he attempted a Penenka penalty in their shootout defeat against Cardiff in 2010 and missed. It's very, very funny. Kermagant himself has talked about how his career from that point, he would completely overshadowed every single thing he did, but I thoroughly recommend it. It's, it's a fine, fine piece of musical work. But my uh, my one of the best memories I have, not as a fan myself, but just for the story story and reflecting back on uh, what they're going to achieve this season is Manchester City. And obviously before the famous Sergio Aguero moment, there was Paul Dickov in 1999, the uh, second division, now League One playoff final. Uh, I know from Manchester, I know people who were at that game and when Gillingham scored their second goal, to go 2-0 up in the 87th minute left the stadium, basically. And I know people who were walking down Wembley Way when Kevin Horlock scored in the 90th minute and then stood outside to hear Paul Dickhoff in the 95th minute take a touch out of his feet and bang one into the top corner to make it 2-2. And then City went on to win the penalty shootout with Nicky Weaver, the hero. Great celebrations of him dancing around like a lunatic. And I think that would be my playoff memory 
for you know 20 odd years ago now we're looking where they've come from that's a nice reminder of what manchester city used to be all about i don't think you can beat Watford leicester i saw something on twitter the other day saying happy troy dini day and that will be kind of <laughs> yeah. remembered forever more than 2013 as i said semi-final that one that kind of i don't know what must have been a minute of action is a kind of distillation of the drama of the, the playoffs when knockout missed the penalty and Troy Deeney goes straight well they go straight up and on the break and Troy Deeney scores the, the winner and there's absolute bedlam that is in a nutshell what can happen in the playoffs so um, also would have to say Leeds Derby a couple of years ago yeah and that was a great tie but that was as you leg, said the se- second leg yeah second it comes leg, down the second leg Derby were kind of liberated and Leeds were feeling the pressure and uh, yeah and obviously there was a bit of needle between the two teams so yeah some great moments in the playoffs hopefully we'll see some more I still think it's Sunderland Charlton isn't it <laughs> that, is a classic. that is the classic it's a classic yeah. isn't it yeah I mean look let's hope for another classic at the weekend as well well I say at the weekend when we eventually get to the playoff finals of course the semi-finals uh, coming up and, and, and hopefully if there are some great games we'll be talking about them next week um, but thank you for being with us on the game podcast today we've run out of time Gregor Robertson Tom Roddy and Tom Clark thank you so much and thank you for listening remember if you're enjoying it give us a five star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from and make sure you're subscribed to the Times and the Sunday Times for more of our award-winning journalism, including that great article about Manchester City's title win as well. Uh, remember, if you sign up today, you will get yourself one month free. So just go online, search the times.co.uk forward slash the game. You can get it across all of your devices as well. We will see you on Monday. helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.